This is The Guardian. Today, after all the controversy, four conversations about this year's World Cup in Qatar. been 12 years in the making, but on Sunday, here in Doha, the World Cup is finally going to kick off. It's the biggest sporting event in the world, maybe the biggest event period, and there's a real buzz in the city. You can see the flags of the 32 countries involved in the tournament everywhere. The World Cup logo is on the side of buildings, there's huge pictures of players, Roads are closed, there's messages being beamed in lights into the sky, and people everywhere. It feels like Doha, this usually very sleepy city, is bracing itself for what's ahead. And what's striking about the atmosphere here is that it's so different to the way the tournament is being talked about in Europe, in the UK and elsewhere, where the focus has been on the controversies around workers' rights, LGBTQ issues, and just a feeling that an event that people really love has come to symbolise a lot of the things that they don't like about the world. And some are questioning how they should engage with this year's tournament, if it's even right to enjoy it. Over the past week, as I've been preparing to come here, I've been trying to grapple with some of those questions and talking to experts, to fans, and to Qataris to try to get to the bottom of it. From The Guardian in Doha, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, what really matters about this year's World Cup? Hey, Kirsty, can you hear me? Hi, yes, I can. Yeah. How's it going? Okay, great. Kirsty Payne and her husband live in a small town near Bristol in southwest England. They're really big football fans, and going to the World Cup is one of their traditions. But this year, she said the decision whether to go to Qatar was one they really struggled with. We have um denied, and we have had a moral dilemma about it because of the human rights issues, of the women's rights issues, of the migrant worker problems that they've had and the people that have died in the run-up to this. It really has uh, bothered us somewhat. Now, ordinarily, we're really well organised. We're booked way in advance. We have canvassed lots of friends and colleagues and peers about this, and we've had a very mixed response um, from people about what to do. Can you take me through, firstly, your relationship with the World Cup? How many of these tournaments have you been to over the course of your life? Well, been to many, many World Cups and European tournaments and sport in general, to be honest. We, we both love sport. We do travel around the world to watch sport, horse racing, cricket, rugby and football um, is a huge, huge uh, thing for us. So we usually take a, a month off work and uh, go out for the whole tournament. We were in South Africa traveling around. We just got married when we went to Germany in a camper van um, for just over five weeks. So our relationship with the World Cup, it's always been there. And 
this is the first time we've had to seriously think about whether to go or not. This has been a, a tricky decision. We'll go back to Kirsty in a bit, but to get a better understanding of the things she's struggling with, I called a journalist who's done maybe more than anyone to expose the issues with Qatar's World Cup. Pete Patterson is a journalist who writes for The Guardian. He's reported from Doha and across South Asia. And his interest in this story started over a decade ago. Okay. Pete, how are you going? All good, thanks. Yeah. How about you? Yeah, getting ready to go to uh, Qatar very soon. Um, Yeah. So, Pete, when did you, I mean, cast your mind back over a decade after this tournament was first announced. The winner to organize the 2022 FIFA World Cup is Qatar. When did you first become aware that there were problems in the way that it was being constructed, designed and put together? Yeah, well, you're right. I mean, I've been documenting the treatment of low-wage workers in Qatar for almost 10 years. And that started actually at Kathmandu's international airport uh, in Nepal, where, where I was based for many years. And I spent many weeks there in the summer of 2013, uh, talking to workers uh, who were about to leave. And that airport just sums up the whole picture of migration. Because if you go to the departure gate, every day you see hundreds of workers heading out to jobs overseas. And they do that because there's just a lack of good jobs in Nepal. But I also heard lots of tales of terrible exploitation overseas. And after all the passengers came out of the arrivals gate, I'd I'd wait a bit longer and sometimes coffins would come out. And those workers had paid the ultimate price for just trying to go and earn some money for their family. Rachita Yadav's husband, Punya, left to work in Qatar six months ago. He recently returned to Nepal in a coffin. He traveled to the Middle East to give his family at home a better life, but in June was killed when he was crushed by a mechanical digger. His family say, while working on a construction site related to World Cup infrastructure. And when you went to Qatar, and you've been many times over the past few years, what did you begin to find about the way that workers there were being treated? Oh, straight away I found many workers on very low wages. I mean, at that time, uh, many of them were earning about something equivalent to 70 pence an hour. Lots of workers weren't being paid on time or even at all. Passport confiscation was widespread. And when I went to the accommodation, the labor camps where these workers lived, I mean, it was really shocking. There were eight, 10, 12 men in bunk beds in very small rooms, you know, overflowing toilets, grimy kitchens. It was It was really appalling. And of course, all these men were subject to the kafala system, which is a system under which workers cannot change their job or even leave the country without their employer's permission. And this left them very vulnerable to abusive treatment. And so when you spoke to these workers, what kinds of things did they tell you? So when I was in Qatar that time, I met a large group of men who had taken refuge in the Nepal embassy because they had not been paid for months. And I remember talking to one of them and he had such a traumatic experience. All his hair had fallen out and he sat in front of me sobbing and he said, I was beaten by my manager. The police didn't help me. And in all my time here, I haven't sent a single rupee home to my family. That is shocking. That's, I mean, 
unbelievable. And so, Pete, one question that, that might come to people's minds is, you know, why did Qatar do it that way? Like, it's such a rich country. So why not just pay these workers a decent wage from the beginning? The conditions in Qatar are not unique. They're actually widespread across the whole Gulf. It's, it's not just a Qatar problem. My answer to that question is really because they can. As you say, Qatar's an incredibly wealthy country, but all around it are countries that are extremely poor, particularly in South Asia and parts of East Africa. And so workers from these countries are desperate for work, and they're willing to put up with exploitative conditions and low pay because the brutal truth is it's better than what they have at home. And what do we know about how much of, of this kind of labour, these kind of exploitative conditions, went into building the infrastructure of the World Cup, especially the stadiums that people will be actually watching the games in? Well, I think there's two important points to, to realise. The first is that, you know, the World Cup is more than seven new stadiums. There's been a massive building spree in, in Qatar, a uh, new airport, a uh, new metro, uh, miles of new roads, uh, many new hotels. And so hundreds of thousands of workers have been involved in building this infrastructure. And although Qatar has recently introduced labor reforms, these reforms were only brought in in the last couple of years. So the entire infrastructure for the World Cup and the stadiums themselves have been built under these very exploitative conditions. After a two-year-long consultation process with the UN body, the International Labour Organization, the state of Qatar has announced sweeping reforms in the way employees are treated in the Gulf state. There's concern that previous laws in place to protect workers haven't been enforced properly. Local media have reported that some construction workers weren't paid for months at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. Can you tell me a little bit about the ways in which Qatar has tried to improve this system and why those reforms haven't been able to reach every worker there. Yeah, I think it's important to acknowledge that the Qatari authorities have made some steps uh, to improve conditions for low-wage workers. The problem is with the implementation of those steps. So the two key reforms are the introduction of a minimum wage and the abolition of the kafala system. And the Qatari authorities say they have approved 350,000 applications to change jobs since the introduction of those reforms, which on the surface sounds significant. There's two problems. The first problem with the minimum wage is that it still equates to just about one pound an hour. That's one pound an hour in one of the richest countries in the world per capita. And secondly, my experience on the ground talking to workers is that they still find it incredibly difficult, you know, almost impossible to change jobs. And so there's this big gap between, you know, the rhetoric and, and the reality. Uh, and as I said, you know, these reforms have been introduced after all the, almost all the stadiums were completed, um, after almost all the infrastructure was in place. So you can only conclude that this World Cup has, has been built on exploitation. And so... Do you think, given everything that you've seen, everything that you've helped bring to light over the past decade or more of reporting, it's possible for a fan sitting in England or the US or even someone who's traveling to Qatar to watch the tournament to enjoy it in a way where they don't have to feel guilty about doing so? Yeah, it's a really difficult question because there's been a lot of talk about boycotts, about not watching the matches, not attending the matches. And I tend to think those are sort of inward-looking conversations. 
almost irrelevant because they don't affect the lives of someone who hasn't been paid for two months or who hasn't had a day off for two months. If they're really concerned about this, I think they can support campaigns that are currently being run by human rights groups, which are calling on FIFA to set up a compensation fund to uh, return money to workers who have suffered abuses over the last 12 years. I think that's a more practical way of engaging with this issue. How do you feel about the fact that after so many years, so much reporting, so much controversy, the event is like finally going to happen this weekend? I'm not sure how I feel about it. I feel that the effort I and my colleagues have made to bring the issues and the challenges faced by low-wage workers in Qatar you know, to the public consciousness, I think they've worked because people are talking about this and that's important. I think that, you know, Organizations like FIFA from this point forward will really pay attention to issues around labor rights when they award mega sporting events. And, and that might be one of the most significant legacies of this World Cup. Pete, thanks for talking to us. My pleasure. So it'd be great to begin by asking you, uh, tell us where you grew up. Where you, where you were born and where you spent your childhood? Well, my name is Dr. Nas Mohammed. I'm a Qatari citizen currently living in the United States on political asylum for being an LGBT person. What's it like to be a kid in Qatar? In my experience, I grew up in an extremely conservative, extremely traditional um, upbringing in Qatar and pretty much, you know, confirmed to all Qatari societal um, standards. Dr. Nasser Muhammad is from Qatar, and he's against this World Cup. Publicly, he's probably the most critical Qatari voice you can find. And that's because he lives in exile. He's got political asylum in the US. Earlier this year, after reading about the way Qatari officials were talking about the LGBTQ community in their country, Dr. Muhammad decided to use social media to publicly come out as gay. And that made him the first out gay Qatari ever. The expectation on the male is to be the provider, right? Like for the family. We definitely had segregated settings. So I only was allowed to be around my sisters. The expectation was to definitely be um, religious. And there is also a huge expectation to be part of the bigger family unit. And that also means getting married by your late teens slash early 20s. Looking back, do you have a point at which you think you begun to feel that you might not grow up to be the kind of man that was expected of you? What I remember is when I was in my um, early teens, when I was 11 or 12 years old, I started to experience same-sex attraction. and. I couldn't process like what I was feeling and um, didn't have access to the internet and was just alone with it. We didn't, we don't even really talk about sex. So it's like the conversation in general is like really absent. And was there a moment that really crystallized things for you? Well, <laughs> that was my Vegas moment <laughs> when I... Um, went to Vegas to present a research article in medical school. When I was walking through a casino in Vegas to get to my room, I just saw some go-go dancers. I was like, I don't have the reaction that person is having. 
And then I thought to myself, I was like, wow, I must be a really good Muslim boy, you know? I really successfully um, suppressed the feeling. And as I was just there contemplative, this guy bumps into my shoulder <laughs> as he was walking by and he was hot and I was immediately turned on. <laughs> and I was like, okay. <laughs> Imagine these go-go dancers. They had no idea the role that they were playing in, in your life. I blame them for the gay man I am today. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> How did you go from Vegas to, to the point where you were seeking asylum in the US? So I went back, um, decided to finish medical school, and then it started consuming me mentally that, that I'm gay. I was like, it's just, how am I going to deal with it? How am I going to stay? How am I going to leave? Where am I going to go? So I decided to do my residency in the U.S. At that time, like when I left in 2011, I felt like I was slipping away, being in Qatar, knowing that I'm gay. And then feeling like I need to break myself into pieces and only keep the ones that sit in there. So I had to leave. And I remember speaking to an attorney and I had a panic moment in her office. And I was like, you don't understand. Like, I cannot go back to Qatar. And I was like, listen, I'm gay. And she was like, oh, sounds like you could file for asylum. And I just was like having decision fatigue about it, honestly. And I just decided to come out to my mom and I called her one night and I said, I'm thinking about not coming back home ever again because I think I'm gay. And, you know, that was a really, really tough conversation. It just was bad. And, um, sorry, Dr. Nas, I know this is really hard to talk about. I know. I know. There's just, they're just tough moments. And the beginning of the end of my relationship with my family was hard. Is that the situation presently, that, that you're not in touch with family, with old friends from that time? Yes. That is correct. And um, not having these relationships... Um, allowed me to come out publicly, I think. It would put them in danger if we were in touch. You believe that? That, that, that if, if you were in touch, you being who you are, that they would be in danger? Yes, I believe that. When you came out and you had all these people from Qatar reaching out to you, what have you since learned about the gay community in Qatar? The dark side of what I learned were the state-sponsored efforts to find and correct LGBT individuals. And that's based both on their sexual orientation, but also their gender identity. But there are people that have been affected by undercover cops going and infiltrating um, gay spaces or setting up fake dates. And the intrusive surveillance and the technology they have, like people have been arrested for having conversations on the phone with their friends without knowing that there was a third party listening to the conversation. They view being an LGBT person the same way they view 
murder and drugs. Like it's in the same category. You said that a big part of the reason why you wanted to come out, especially now, was because of the messages that the Qatari government were putting out about their society. What were those messages that you found so offensive? Officials were implying that there are no LGBT people in Qatar, and that's a Western thing. And that is just, <laughs> like, it's just wrong. All LGBT Qataris um, I spoke to had in common is fear. There is fear all the time. Fear of loss, fear of being found out, fear of being persecuted. There is, there's just constant fear. They want to continue the crackdown on us at home, but they welcome LGBT people from elsewhere. Honestly, it's just so hard to watch. And then also not all foreigners are treated the same way. If you're visiting from another Arab country or you're uh, a migrant worker and you're poor, your treatment is going to be very, very different than somebody that's invited by a royal family member to Qatar. One of the arguments that has been made is that, you know, Qatar has its own culture and they have a right to that culture and people from Western countries shouldn't be coming in and judging. What do you make of, of that argument? I have the same right to that culture. And abuse and violence don't belong to any culture. Using traditions and culture to gaslight people that are advocating for human rights is just an abusive tactic. Just finally, have you in the past four months since you've taken this stand regretted what you've done? Ah, oh, gosh, I went through a complete roller coaster <laughs> this last four months. I do think I have already made a difference, though. I believe that. So, no, I don't regret it. I had people from home reach out to me, and they were at the position I was in. And they didn't have to go through what I did. They just heard it from me directly in, in Arabic on their TV. And now it's circulating in Qatar. And I also know now that on a government level, a conversation is starting about LGBT rights in Qatar that will continue beyond this World Cup. Dr. Nasser Mohammed, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Coming up. Another Qatari view of the World Cup from someone who spent their whole life in Doha. Shaima Sharif is from Qatar. She co-owns and runs a centre called Embrace Doha dedicated to preserving Qatari culture. Maybe we can get you in a coffee ceremony before Thursday. Tell me where we're sitting right now. So we're at Embrace Doha Cultural House. We are an independent cultural centre and it's woman-led, woman-run. And obviously you're hoping that as the 1.2 million tourists expected to come here arrive, a few of them make their way through this centre as well. What do you hope that they come to learn about Qatari culture? 
I hope 1.2 million people do come, be great for business. What we want is for people to better understand the local culture here. And that, you know, there are a lot of stereotypes that exist around the local or even regional culture. And that if we just have a conversation together, we have more in common than what we think. At the moment, in the lead up to this World Cup, it seems like that mismatch is really on display. From the point of view of someone in Qatar, how does the way that this World Cup is being portrayed overseas look? I'm really sad to see what has been published. Um, Like any World Cup, obviously, and it's, it's a platform to raise certain points. But it's a lot of good that the World Cup has brought to the region in general. So um, for us, it's really about people not understanding our culture. We're a community just like any other community. It's just, you know, we might have different skin tones. We might speak a different language. And it's just about coming, learning a little bit more about, you know, your neighbors, um, about the people the other side. And um, maybe just getting rid of those misconceptions. For, for Qatar itself, it's sad because there's a lot of good that's happened that, you know, that's not being highlighted, especially when it comes to our healthcare, our education, our infrastructure, and like what we're doing. We're doing a lot more, a lot faster than anywhere else in the world. And so to think about some of the things that people are concerned about overseas, one of the issues they raise, for example, is uh, that of workers' right. What do Qataris make of that criticism? I think it's unfair because the the headlines have been misleading and statistics speak for themselves. And I think if they were just to just look at the statistics and see the uh, distribution of the population, that maybe it's not true what they're saying. Um, but again, like this is a hard one to answer. I'm trying to be truthful in it. Um, it's not black and white, right? And a lot of reform has happened because of the World Cup. And I think we need to, you know, think about that. And we do have a lot to go, like any other country. We're always trying to do better in everything that we do. But I've seen a lot of good that's happened. The other difficult one is the issue of how LGBTQ people are treated here, both foreigners and Qatari LGBTQ people. What is the view of Qataris of of the focus on that issue and some of the problems that are being raised in the media about it? Well, for the World Cup, I think it's been made very clear that everybody's welcome and that there'll be no discrimination at all for somebody on any gender spectrum or any religious background. In terms of um, having a view of what the Qatari people think, everybody should talk about themselves. And there are lots of different communities here that represent, you know, different things. I shouldn't be talking about somebody else. They should be speaking up for themselves. You mean the LGBT community should be speaking for themselves here. The other issue, and I'm conscious we're sitting here in, in a women-led business, is, is the issue of Qatari women. And there's this view overseas, women here, they're restricted in, in ways. I mean, what as someone who's grown up in Qatar, as a Qatari woman who is educated, runs her own business, I mean, what do you make of, of that criticism? I laugh at it, actually. <laughs> I've been thinking about it a lot lately. So um, I, you know, I'm, I'm a working mother. I, I run my own business with my partner, but I'm also an archaeologist. I'm a scientist. And, you know, I had a very good back, um, educational background and everybody around me had a very good educational background. And I'm just going to talk statistics for a second because science doesn't lie. We have some of the highest female graduates in STEM. Like more Qatari women are graduating science, in STEM. Technology. Science, technology. The, the government has done so much to give us true equality in the workspace. Our, there, we don't really have a very bad pay gap as the West does. Our maternity leave is quite generous. 
I get two years where I get to go home early as a mother, you know, we call it a breastfeeding leave so that I have that opportunity to bond with my child longer. I've, I've never faced any problem in the workspace. In fact, as a woman, I feel like I have more opportunity. And so all these controversies aside, for Qataris, what does this tournament mean to be able to host a World Cup? It's really important for us. And it's not important just for the Qataris, it's important for the region because never has the World Cup been in this region before. Most of the time it's been in the West or you know, it's been in places where, I mean, let's be real, brown people don't get that opportunity to host it. And so I feel when I read the newspapers or when I see the headlines that they're not happy that you know a non-Western country is hosting the World Cup and that's why they're attacking us and it's unfair. That's what you see is motivating the attitude towards this World Cup? Yes, I do. I truly do. I mean, it's why can't we host the World Why can't, I'm not saying Qatar specifically, why can't a country from this region host the World Cup? And so for people in the UK or elsewhere who are wondering if they should come to this World Cup, if they should engage with it, if they should even, you know, boycott it, because that's one of the things people are suggesting, you know, should be done. What do you say to those people? What's your pitch to them? I say come and see it for yourself. That's simple. Shaima, thank you so much. Thank you. Coming back to you, Kirsty Payne, when you and your husband were debating whether to go to Qatar, tell me about some of the conversations you were having with people, trying to figure out where to land on this question. Well, I don't think there is a right place to land on it, to be fair. And in our conversations uh, with friends, we had a whole range of, of different reactions. Some of them were quite angry that we are actually going. A lot of people that we spoke to, if we said, what do you think we should do? Um, I've said, no, don't go, don't go at all. Um, by supporting, you're, you, you know, you're saying that it's okay what's happening. Um, and when we did come to our decision, we actually decided that if we can go out there and have a non-confrontational way of protesting, but be proactive in our approach of showing that we don't agree with this, um, we can't shout about women's rights and LGBTQ plus communities or migrant workers or human rights issues by sitting at home on the sofa. Okay, just so I understand this correctly, where you landed here was, let's go to Doha, but let's have our own non-confrontational protest. And that protest is basically to where, how much rainbow are we talking here? We are going quite rainbow. Uh, we both got rainbow hats. My husband has a rainbow captain's armband. Um, we have uh, rainbow clothing, rainbow wings. So we'll be, hopefully, um, you never know, by walking around like that, and hopefully other people will be doing the same thing. I, I think it's possibly um, raising a bit more awareness than, than boycotting. You'll be hard to miss, Kirsty. <laughs> well, well, listen, we have a voice. We'd like to use it, but it's very difficult to get a point across about women's rights and migrant workers, um, you know, without, without having slogans and banners everywhere. It's going to be difficult. On a sheer practical level, how are you preparing for a World Cup that's going to be held in a very different country to where, where it's normally held? For one thing, it's going to be, a, you know, much hotter. There'll be restrictions on alcohol. It'll be tough to get. It'll be much more expensive. How are you and your husband approaching the kind of, of a World Cup in a place like Qatar? 
Um, it, it will be different. Uh, but then again, every World Cup we go to is different. It's it's always a, a learning curve. I have to say, I don't think we will see as many um, fans out there as usual because the costs have been eye-watering for booking hotels uh, and and things like that. It's it, And as far as the alcohol restrictions go, I think, um, I mean... Fans will always find a way to socialise and I suspect they'll have a drink in their hotels. I think where it will um, not be conducive to the kind of festival atmosphere you get, we won't have that thing that you get in every country when you go for a World Cup where fans of all nationalities gather and socialise in market squares and have a drink and sit outside bars and there's usually a bit of healthy singing competition and chanting. Well, I guess in the case of you alone, Kirsty, it's going to be a much more colourful World Cup than in the past. <laughs> yes, yeah, certainly. Well, I put it this way, I've never, ever been to a World Cup football match um, completely covered in rainbow flags, hats uh, uh, <laughs> and accessories. It's a first in so many ways. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Kirsty, one last question. For someone listening to this who is having similar doubts to you, not so much about going to the World Cup, but even whether to watch it, to engage with it, what advice would you give them? What would you say to someone who's in that position? Sport is a great leveller for everybody. If you get behind your team, I think um, we will create a fantastic atmosphere in the UK, as we did for the women's football in the summer, it lifts everyone's spirits. It really does help everyone. And if you have a lot of people sitting in a pub, watching England at home, it will raise the conversations about these human rights issues because it will naturally come into conversation. So rather than bury this under the carpet, I wholeheartedly think that the country should um, get behind the team and behind the World Cup in order to raise these conversations and these issues. And Kirsty, thanks for having this conversation with us today. No, thank you for having me. That was Kirsty Payne, an England fan who's heading to Qatar for this Sunday's World Cup. Thank you so much to her as well as to Pete Patterson, whose work you can read at theguardian.com, and to Shaima Sharif and Dr Nasser Mohammed. Before we go, for the length of the World Cup, Football Weekly is becoming Football Daily, where the team are recapping every match and off-field drama, and you can follow each day by searching Football Weekly, wherever you listen to Today in Focus. And that's it for today. This episode was produced by Lucy Hoff. Sound design was by Axel Kakutier. The executive producer was Homer Khalili. And we're back Monday. This is The Guardian.